This week on FX Guide TV. We have highlights from CVMP, a conference that brings together image science researchers and creatives in production and post. This FX Guide TV is proudly sponsored by SideFX Software, makers of the new Houdini 12. Faster, easier, and more productive with a new flip fluid solver, dynamic fracturing tools, and a streamlined lighting workflow, giving artists more control in their day-to-day -day work. Hello and welcome to another FX Guide TV, this week coming to you from the UK. John Montgomery recently attended the CVMP conference in London, now in its eighth year. CVMP brings together production and post-production specialists with imaging and graphics researchers. It's a great place to discuss the latest research, advances and state-of-the-art in our industry, as John Montgomery knows well. John? Thanks for that, Angie. And last November's CVMP conference was really a great one. In fact, it actually sold out and they had to turn people away at the door because they didn't have room. Uh, they're actually taking care of that this year. But those of you who watch FX Guide TV know we pay a lot of attention to research and basic technology because in the end it's that research that ends up putting cool tools in the hands of artists. And CVMP provides some interesting insight into that. Our second half of this app, we're going to take a look at some really cool research uh, from Cambridge taking a look at extracting 3D surfaces from a series of still images. We're going to start out with a cool project that was done in Germany by a group of researchers, effectively kind of a, a twist on bullet time where they created this video using a series of locked off cameras in a grid and basically filmed a multitude of action, basically on a green screen set, even did some graffiti painting over, over the panels in order to make this happen, and then used software and interpolation methods to create camera movement as well as creating changes in both spatial location as well as temporal changes in time. The presentation of the group's research at CVMP was done by Christian Lipsky, representing a group of researchers, so let's go ahead and cross to that now. This is just a small previs of um, the stage and the camera rig. Um, so you can see it was like a stage-like setup with these uh, three layers of, of cardboard uh, walls and a small box in the middle and um, a rig that um, had like 11 HD camcorders. Um, this is what it looked like on the actual set, so you can see it better from here. Um, so we actually uh, constructed the whole set, uh, attached the rig to it, put up these camcorders and also the recording PCs. So we had like, f I think, four PCs recording the MPEG streams um, of the cameras. Um, at first, we captured the foreground, we painted everything green, um, so we could do a nice uh, um, chroma keying afterwards. And this is just a typical scene, uh, one of the short ones towards the end, so you see the guy uh, playing the drums and walking around. Um, and we just didn't have this one recording, we had uh, a total of 11 cameras recording um, the action. We also did the um, time-lapse afterwards. So this is just a very short time-lapse of the whole graffiti spraying. It took, I think, four or five days to uh, paint on all these things. And we also did the chroma keying, um, extracted some kind of background layer, so uh, um, the shadow layer. Uh, and what we did then was doing a rough composite of how the final video should look like. Um, I have to say that this is just, um, this is without view interpolation. This is just um, uh, like um, 
out of the box composite, um, no like dedicated special effects apart from compositing, um, to give us an idea where the sh camera should move, uh, when we should be in, in which camera position, and um, what we did with this was that we could then do our view interpolation and time interpolation. So this is just an example of um, three of the original 11 cameras. Um, we recorded uh, frames like these from different viewpoints, also from different points in time. Um, and what we did then was to uh, interpolate the view from two or three cameras and also to interpolate in time. So we could do time freeze, um, slow motion, other time effects, and combine this with the spatial interpolation. Okay, how did we do this? Uh, maybe some of you have been here last year and maybe some of these people remember my talk. Um, it was about view interpolation um, and uh, we do this by, by basically image morphing. So we find for every pixel in an image its correspondence in another image. Um, and we do this of course for every pixel. Um, if you want to see the details, please dig out my old paper and have a look at it. Um, right now, I'd rather go through the making of. Um, so this is just one example where we have one image, then the flow vectors to the other image, and um, the result between these two images looks like this. So th this is just um, uh, rendering between two images, and it can be applied to more images taken at different uh, locations and also different points in time. Okay, and using this technique, we can come from something like this. Um, I just brought the, the matrix, matrix snippet with me, so you all know these images. Um, they had a setup like this, where they had literally hundreds of cameras, and we can get to a much uh, cheaper and smaller setup and we have full control of the camera path in post-production. So in the post, we can decide if we want to have a time freeze, um, if we also want to stop the camera movement, or if we want to combine um, time effects with spatial effects, and this gave us a lot of freedom. So actually, this is the software we used. Um, this is what we made in our uh, little lab. Um, so on the bottom right, you can see a preview rendering of these two actors, and on the left-hand side, you can see um, this red dot. This is the position of the camera at this point of time. Um, the, these cubes, they indicate the original positions um, of the cameras on the set, and this green line is the camera trajectory. So now we can move the camera around, move it along this path, and we can also insert new keyframes if we want to change this path, uh, which I do here. And then we got this little dent in the camera movement. So um, with this tool, we can just um, edit the camera movement in post-production. You remember that we need these dense correspondences for the background. Um, it was rather easy because we have a static background. Uh, meaning that we just have to compute these correspondences once. And we had a very simple scene. So we just took the calibration data of this set, uh, put it into a um, 3D modeling software, which was Blender, um, fit these planes to the, to the point cloud, and got nice depth maps from it for each camera. And we could also compute um, the motion vectors of each pixel to other cameras. So we got depth maps and these correspondence fields, everything we need for rendering. Um, and then we could do 
something like this. So this is just um, a rendering of the background. And again, you can see the red dot indicating the position of the virtual camera. Um, you can see which um, original images are used for interpolation of the new images, and you can see where the camera goes. Okay. Um, for the foreground correspondences, is what it was different because we needed um, to compute them for every image pair that uh, we uh, used. Um, this was a computational bottleneck of the whole pipeline, so it took about 10 minutes um, for each frame to compute them. And sometimes we had to correct uh, mistakes by the automatic matching. Um, this is actually a project on its own. Um, so Felix is going to be here uh, at the poster sessions, um, poster session this noon, and he's going to give you some information on that. So check out the poster session. In the end, there was some compositing, of course, backgrounds, um, also some, some shadows, and then the foreground action. And now you can see um, how the results differ. Um, on, the, on the top, you can see these, this initial composite again, so without any view interpolation. And on the bottom, you can see what we did with our view interpolation. So we have this smooth movement of the camera between the original positions. And yeah, especially in this time-free scene, it becomes quite obvious. In the end, we said, you know, we have this nice music video, it's 2D. Why don't we just uh, make a 3D stereoscopic version um, by hitting the render button twice? Um, it sounds quite easy and straightforward, and um, actually it is for most cases. So if we define this virtual camera in red here, we just hit render twice on a second position and we have a nice stereoscopic image pair. But if you look at other positions, for example, um, here between the two topmost cameras, when we want to render a stereoscopic view here, um, it would be somewhere there. So um, actually, this position is quite hard to, to render, to synthesize new views, because effectively, um, up there, we can just uh, synthesize virtual cameras, virtual images um, uh, on this blue area. So we can just move along the two topmost cameras. So it's quite impossible to render a stereoscopic pair there. Effectively, the rendering area shrinks when doing um, something like this. Okay, um, what did we do? We just do some depth image-based rendering. Uh, we have the depthness for the background. We can also um, compute some nice depths for the foreground, um, put it together with the color maps, um, sh uh, shift it, fill the holes, do it for the other view, and got these nice stereoscopic pairs. And yeah, that's it for now. Thanks for your attention. Well, that presentation was representative of a lot of them at CBMP, mixing research as well as production techniques. And the next thing we're going to take a look at is really some hardcore image processing research. And as I mentioned earlier, it's about extracting 3D surfaces from a series of photographs. There's been a lot of presentations and research about laboratory controlled settings, where you put a 3D object on a turntable over a static background, rotate it and generate 3D surfaces. But that obviously gets a lot more complex when you enter the real world and you're trying to extract an object out of a really complicated scene. And that's where this presentation comes in. I remember being at NAB probably 20 years ago and seeing some tech that did this and not very well. And this research is really starting to show some promise and that we might actually see some real world applications of it shortly in the future. 
The presentation at CVMP was done by Neil Campbell, representing a whole panel of researchers. So let's go ahead and cross that presentation now. In general, my motivation for doing these sort of things has been the capturing of 3D content. Um, so um, lots of demand for 3D content these days. I mean, we've got, a, apart from obviously the visual media, which we're here particularly to look at, but also digital archiving and things like that. You've seen examples from Roberto, engineering inspection, medical imaging. And I think it's nice that these areas all actually collapse into one. So we can, by solving something that we help here, we can help lots of different areas. Um, I think if we're looking at sort of examples and settings like this, perhaps we want to go into the real world. These are sort of more my, my area of research has been taking some of these methods and trying to, to remove the fact that those images were taken in a lab against a black backdrop with a light source that someone moved around very carefully. If you go outside and ask the sun to move, uh, trouble ensues. So um, what can we do when we don't have as much control? Can we, can we still uh, make sense of things? And in fact, this is what happens if you use um, some of those multi-view stereo results in these scenes. I mean, we're doing quite a good job on the plant, but anywhere there's a specular highlight or thin structures and things like that, or low texture, the shadows of the pot and things like that, holes just appear. We're quite good now um, at, at reconstructing these things with confidence, so we don't put nonsense in there. We, we do say, oh, okay, we don't know. We'll, we'll put a hole there if, if we're not sure what's going on. But still, when it comes to things like the sports bottle, um, lots of... I mean, is that really any use? It's lots of holes and things like that. Um, what can we do in these situations? So um, photosystency-based multi-view stereo, which is, the, which is exploiting this texture, is going to fail without texture and with specular components. Um, but one thing we know that will always work in any given these situations is the silhouette. So having some form of shape from silhouettes is always going to be able to handle these awkward structures, thin structures, and things like that, because um, you can always extract silhouettes unless you've got a polar bear in a snowfield or something like that, in which case maybe we go home. Um, for multi-view stereo results, um, we can use silhouettes to improve the results. So even if, we, if, if, if the silhouettes are always going to be of use, the worst they can do is make no difference. But in many situations, they improve results. And we've got some references there um, showing that, in fact, multi-view stereo is usually looking at finding surfaces, whereas silhouettes constrain the edge of your surfaces. So they're actually providing a complementary source of, inf of information. So your multi-view stereo, you can't see any texture at the boulders an object, whereas silhouettes tell you exactly where the borders are there. So lots of uh, useful information crossing over um, as outer bounds of reconstruction or for occlusion reasoning and things like that. So very useful things to have. How we go about obtaining those silhouettes? Well, lots of the, I think Roberto has some examples of these sort of labs. Um, and those are sort of the images you get on a nice turntable. Well, what now if you go outside um, uh, just to the, to the actual settings of things like this, real world inverted commas, um, can we still perform segmentation automatically? So we can no longer do background subtraction. Can we do anything else? And also bearing in mind that we've got large numbers of images. So if we're going to use some of the, like lots of state of art interactive techniques on, on individual images, you go and maybe you draw a bounding box, draw some scribbles and things like that. We've got a large number of images. We don't really want to be going and doing that um, for a data set where you've got 30 images or 60 images or something like that. So here we've got these are all the images that we're using to reconstruct this horse. We have got the camera calibration because we've used something like bundle or some structure from motion technique to get the calibration because we're going to use that to reconstruct the object. 
given that we've got that information, um, we may as well use it now and perform this segmentation automatically so we don't have to go in uh, image by image. Um, from a more technical side of things, what, what constraints do we have when we're, we're um, cutting out things? So obviously when we segment, we've got some, we assume some consistency in an object and some consistency in the background of the thing that we're trying to cut out. In this particular instance, we've got some extra multi-view geometry constraints, um, some epipolar constraints, and we also have depth information that we could exploit. And we have object rigidity. So we're assuming as a rigid object that we're looking at from lots of views. And, and those, uh, as, as Roberto had with some visual how, and I'll recap briefly, um, you, you get a lot of constraints from those silhouettes. But um, the, the previous, both previous approaches were dealing with the first and the last. And what we're coming in here is saying, well, can we try and include all of these in the middle to help us recover from some, some cases we can't handle? So from the problem analysis, we, we've got a set of calibrated images. Um, we want to obtain the silhouettes of a rigid object, so they're related by this, this visual hole constraint. And they're going to be observed against an unknown background. And we want to perform this process automatically. So what limitations do the current processes have? Well, they use generative appearance models, so uh, Gaussian mixture models in color space and things like that. Um, that's all well and good. But what happens when the objects are not separable in color space? So they're observed in some kind of cluttered background. It's not, a, it's not a straightforward task anymore. And maybe the silhouette coherency alone isn't sufficient. So this was, uh, uh, these are some, some of the input images we've seen before. This is one of my previous results. And we're not doing too badly. We're recovering a consistent object. But we've cut off the head of the horse. Um, and in fact, the, the similar work by Liadal does the other way. He covers more of the head of the horse, but cuts off the tail of the horse. Um, and if we're, if we're wondering why, if we look at, so if we zoom into the red box on the top left of the image there, I think the zoom in one, if I were to ask you to draw the, back, the, the dividing line between the ear of the horse and the, and the background, um, I don't know if a user, I don't think I could do it. I've tried. Um, this constraint over here from the... Um, uh, this, is, this is showing the likelihood model that was used by both of those papers in color space, where one is likely to be uh, white is likely to be object, black is likely to be background, and we see that there's a mess going around in that area. And so you're not going to be, a, and that, that's not just one image. There's a couple of images where it's observed against that background. In that case, we can't recover. And so there it said, I can't, I can't deal with this. I made a consistent object by cutting the head off, and the the tail is observed in similar clutter and. And in fact, it's still the ears are cut off in these method, but it cuts the tail off because it's observed, and it's a similar problem. So what can we do to, to help with this? Well, it fails to account for the surface location. The me both methods are failing to account for the surface location depth. So actually, depth information, in the same way that Connect is segmenting people, if you had some depth information, that separation process would be easier to perform. Um, so if we take a kernel function rather than a generative model in the image domain, we can add in, we can obviously do the consistency of appearance by having kernels that map colors to similar, similar colors to, to low values. But we can also weight this mapping by things like epipolar constraints and depth. Um, and so we use that to construct a single graph across all the images. So we move out of the, out of the volume domain into the image domain um, and construct a big graph across all of the images and segment them all in one step rather than individually um, and successively. Um, and in order to be able to do that, we have to use some super pixels. We use a turbo pixels implementation in order to make the graph small enough that when you've got four megapixel images, you don't end up with a graph that's too big to fit in memory. So how does the algorithm actually work? Um, 
So we initialize with the fixation condition and the visible volume, which I'll, I'll show in just a second. We then learn, um, we, we learn our initial models for object and background to perform an initial segmentation. Um, we generate this graph. We've said the nodes are from the superpixels, and the edges will, will show how the kernel functions that, that compare likely depths and likely colors together um, to con control the edges in the graph. And then we start an initiative process. So we evaluate the likelihoods and, and do a graph cuts cut to get the segmentation. And then it's a little bit like grab cuts there. We're going and we're saying, OK, well, now we're going to enforce the silhouette coherency term and use that current estimate of the silhouettes to generate some more, up, more accurate models and then keep going round in the circle um, until, we, until we converge to uh, a stable solution. Um, and so now looking at the automatic initialization part of it, it's really very simple. We just assume that if you're going to take a picture, if you're going to take a load of photos to reconstruct an object, you were going to look at the object that you wanted to reconstruct and not somewhere else. So all of the images should be focused on the object that you're going to reconstruct. So if you intersect the sort of viewing volumes and things like that, you're going to get projection into the image of where uh, of, of a centroid in, in 3D space and take some Gaussian density distribution across that, put that into your images and say, OK, well, I think the foreground object is likely to be in here. And then for the, for the volume that you must constrain, well, if you project the cones of each uh, camera into the scene um, and form the intersection of them, um, then you get some polytope like that. And that shows that in the object that we want to reconstruct is inside this volume. So now we've got a nice defined problem of saying we want to reconstruct something inside this volume, and we think it's centered in the scene. And so that, that's the automatic initialization process there. Um, now moving on to the, uh, the color models um, that, that we're using. Um, they just, they're just um, Gaussian mixture models. I'm not really going into any details about them. They're just Gaussian mixture models, the same as everyone else uses. But um, where, they, where it really comes in for the interesting part of it is looking at the superpixels and how we connect those up with these kernel functions. So um, in a bit more detail, we're going to combine the depth information from multiple images to weight these graph edges. So we start with an image. We've got the superpixelation of the images. Um, we have the calibration. So that's the neighboring images in 3D space. Um, we pick a neighboring image, project the epipolar line into the neighboring image. So that's the place that that pixel, that the pixel in blue there, can only map to one of the pixels along that line. Um, if we look at the color consistency along the line, then we get a, a sort of high heat score for areas that are similar in color. Um, but also, of course, as we go along the, uh, the epipolar line, we're going along depth. So we have a measure of how consistent um, the objects are at depth. Um, Looking at it in a little bit more detail, we might go something like this. So we're going to protect that. That's for one neighboring image. We have this appearance consistency. We go to another neighboring image. We get another appearance consistency going on over the top. But this is very weak stereo. We're not using dense uh, stereo here because we can't. We haven't got necessarily a textured surface. We don't want to make assumptions that we can very accurately locate that surface. So we're purposely saying, well, the superpixels, we're going to give a broad response. Uh, it's not going to be a very accurate depth. So we'll put them in some histogram bins, the width of which is determined by the superpixels. Um, and so we put each, each of the scores in different histograms, and then we combine all the histograms together um, with an outlier model to make sense of the fact that maybe one of the surfaces didn't see it. So there might have been some occlusion or something like that. Um, then we build up this graph with all the nodes in the images, and we connect up the nodes weighted by the depth consistency. So the high 
um, high likelihood of depth is obviously going to make a strong link between those pixels, a strong likelihood that they correspond to one another. And in fact, if we want to sparsify the graph, we might say that ones that are really link, uh, really weak links should just be uh, cut so we don't include them in our, in our final graph. So if we look at the results without depth and with depth information here, so we've got the superpixel marked in yellow there is if we, if we truncate that matrix, that, those weights, and look at all the other superpixels and neighboring images it's connected to, we can see that they always, they're obviously along the epipolar line and they are consistent in, in visual appearance, but we're having that exact problem of we can't separate um, the foliage and things like that from the leaf because they look the same and they are along the same epipolar lines. But if we add the depth information in there, um, we get uh, only the only possible candidates we have are in consistent regions. So the, it only matches to ears of the horse in other images, um, and the, the weights onto the background and to the trees and things like that have been removed. So if we now look at some results, um, there's the images again. So just a reminder that it was the previous results we had. Um, and here we go. So if we do all that and use the depth information altogether, we get both of the head and the tail. So we've got some really nice results uh, on that one. If we were to remove the depth information, we still do better than we did before. But um, we're still not able to recover those ears. So the ears and the, the bits of the, the extremities and things like that that were lost in that background really observed in quite difficult clutter are being recovered with the, with the additional depth information. Um, so now we're going back to the, to the plant data set. And if you remember before, we said, well, under multi-view stereo, so that's um, our previous method, which is very similar to, to uh, Adrian and John's method um, from a similar time. Uh, Lee's method is doing, is doing better, but still it can't separate out the, all of the thin structures. It still has this blobby appearance, and it's not able to converge at the bottom properly because of shadows and effects like that. Uh, when you're looking at the image domain, it's not, it hasn't got the depth, so it can't reason about these things when we go in. We get some really quite nice details, although the fine structures are coming. The, uh, one of the limitations is the fact that we had to use these superpixels to make the graph tractable. And so that if the superpixel happens to, to cut across and doesn't capture a really thin structure, then obviously we can't recover it. Um, and you can see that more clearly. So if I, these are the sort of the, the shape results, just the intersection of the silhouettes as the visual hull. Um, you can see we're doing quite a nice job, but occasionally we, we cut off a bit of a, a, a thin structure just because of the, the way the superpixels have gone through. So looking now at, say, this tabletop scene in Clutter. So we've got everything. We've got Clutter, textular, specular objects. Um, we have like holes being drilled in by multi-view stereo. If we go back to Lyadal's algorithm and things like that, it's, it's so much Clutter that it can't, the edges in, the, in 2D and things like that alone are not providing you enough data. You can, that's sort of not even a consistent object. That that's the final solution. It won't, even, it won't even make a consistent object because it can't find the edges that, that correspond. Whereas if you're using this extra depth information in a soft setting, you can, you can just recover that um, straight away. And I think the next big challenge as well, which has already been touched on yesterday by, by Phil's talk very nicely, is, well, we've got to try and do this in video. So here we have a scaling with a, the, the graph is going to scale with the number of images. So if I start extending images to entire video sequences, then my memory requirements and everything are going to all scale up. So how do we deal with that? How can we? Um, perform the segmentation between frames and things like that. Um, cool. Um, my, my subtle uh, sort of subliminal messaging by using giant bold font is to say, um, please come, please talk to me if you're interested in any of these areas, because I'm always interested to see where people might 
um, use these sorts of things. And if you had any ideas about any of that future work and things like that, please get in contact because I'd be keen to discuss some things like that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's just a sample of the presentations at CVMP this year. We're actually going to have full-length versions of those available on our site as a quick take, so you can check out the uncut full-length versions. We're also going to have some extra presentations for FX Insider supporters uh, that they can actually view as well. It's really great to see a lot of our uh, watchers and viewers from FX Guide as well as FX PhD at the event. I think this conference is really gaining some traction. This year, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be held in a larger venue, and it's going to be held late in the month in November. They've announced some dates, but that's a bit in flux at this point in time. But if you're in the area, in the, in the UK, really recommend you check it out. Well, that's it from Chicago and London, I guess. Uh, let's head on back to Sydney and Angie. If you want, you can follow us on Twitter as FX Guide News, and also now on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash fxguide. We will post not only FX Guide stuff, but also FX PhD news and updates. Until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.